0: Lord, today we desire to praise you and to lift up your name that you might be glorified today. Uh, we continue to pray for the new fells and desire that you would guide them as they seek you and use them as they desire to be used and bless their ministry, expand it, give them all that you desire experience, protect them as they travel and as they encounter even dangerous situations that you would, in fact, have a shield of protection around them and we pray the same for, for Sharon especially in terms of medical issues that you protect her spiritually and physically as well this morning we desire from your word to get a glimpse of plan that you lay out for us and even though it is somewhat uh, debated and controversial i just pray that uh, we get at the essence of what you're trying to communicate through this glorious passage And we desire that uh, we would be in tune with your plan, that we would be obedient and walk with you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Let's take a look at God's sovereign plan that he's been pleased to lay out for us in the book of Romans. In fact, this is an amazing passage. This whole chapter, one of the most far-reaching, I guess you could say, chapters in all of the Bible, And in laying this out, Paul is actually got a primary purpose for telling us these magnificent truths that he lays out here. So when we talk about the context, one of the main things that Paul has in view here is the concept of suffering. And obviously, chapter 8 is the closing chapter dealing with sanctification. So we've been talking a lot about sanctification, and he's bringing it to somewhat of a climax, you might say, in the passage that we're looking at. And he's giving us a lot of confidence that God is doing all things here on our behalf. But the context, if you remember, beginning in verse 17, he talks about suffering. And in 18, the suffering we experience now is nothing to be compared to the glory. So he's going to... Basically, focus on the glory, the future glory that God has in store for the believer. And he says it in such a way that it is a certainty. And if you know the nature of God, you realize that God, not only being omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, eternal, and all the other characteristics, time is of no element to him So anything in the future to him is as certain as anything that we look at from our perspective in the past. Bill likes to say for God, time is irrelevant. It's it's always ever present in his experience in terms of his eternality. So he lays out basically our future and he lays it out in terms that I think gives a certainty that what he has said will in fact take place. And he does that. So that we would be encouraged, oftentimes, probably in the midst of suffering, and if it's more severe, we tend to get kind of get lost in it, and our our thinking gets clouded, and sometimes we lose sight of reality, even. Even though I don't mean to say that our suffering is not real, but there are truths and realities that transcend and go beyond the immediate pain that we may be in. And it's in those circumstances that these are the passages that we need to reflect on because they'll encourage us to endure through them. So we're dealing with sanctification. And I've mentioned that one of the main instruments Paul uses, or God uses rather, that Paul lays out in our sanctification is suffering that is inevitable as we live in a fallen world. Textually, I've been mentioning already that Paul gives us the greatest support that you could imagine through the experience of suffering. And part of that is just the truth that he lays out, the fact of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, the fact of sonship, we're part of the family, the fact that the Holy Spirit prays for us, kind of a mind-blowing concept. So if, if our prayers fail... Be assured that we have a divine person praying for us. And this is all in the same context, the context of suffering. Then we have these tremendous promises, like verse 28, that God is working all these things. And in this particular context, whatever suffering, he's working them for our good. Now, we may not experience all of that immediately. We may have to endure some of the pain, but we know that pain will end, and we also know that there are some ultimate things that we can look forward to. So chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, power over the sinful flesh, 12 through 17, sonship of sanctification, and we're completing probably today the portion 18 through 30, which deals with the suffering in the midst of sanctification. There's a future hope. We've seen 18 through 25 that includes the entire universe. That's why I keep mentioning just this far-ranging and comprehensive hope that we have that it's going to change radically the entire universe. In fact, the universe is anticipating what we will experience in the future. So we have this future hope and present support of the Holy Spirit, 26 and 27. And now we're looking at this sovereign plan, tremendous plan that God has laid out for us. Just to remind you, we looked at verse 28. We know that God causes all things. And in this context, when he uses the entire universe, he's not limiting it. He's using All things, I think, in a very comprehensive sense, working all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. We looked at that concept, the purpose of God, He's pleased to lay it out, even in the midst of a world that looks like sometimes is falling apart. A lot of insecurity in the world, a lot of individual (coughs) insecurity. And yet there's a purpose for the believer. Now there's also a purpose for the unbeliever, but that's not going to be very comfortable. So we looked at the plan. We're in the middle of looking at the progress of this plan. And he gives us the steps that God has laid out. Some of them, in terms of our present time, have already been worked out in the experience of many. And he deals with some issues that, sometimes are hard to understand. That's why I like to look at the theological context. And it's not immediate. It's not in chapter 8. Chapter 8 is the glorious chapter. It's the one that looks at the big plan and the outcome of that. And he doesn't allude to it or mention it, but he's already done that in the earlier chapters of the book of Romans. In the the early chapters, like chapter 1 through 3, He lays out the concept of total depravity. And I think if you understand this, and I think as you're reading through Romans, Paul's not bringing it up because he spends three chapters dealing, in fact, one of the longest sections in the book of Romans, with the concept of man's depravity. What that means, it's not that man is as evil and as corrupt as he can be. But it has the idea that man is totally incapable. That's the idea here. Totally incapable of doing anything to please God in his own nature. The only way that we can do anything to please God requires a born-again experience and then the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And that's the only way that we can do anything to please God. When we were in those passages, remember we talked about Any good works that we try to perform to please God are like menstrual rags. That's the literal meaning of the word in Isaiah. Filthy rags. Anything that we try to do to to please God doesn't cut it. What we need is what Jesus Christ accomplished on our behalf. So this concept is very important, I think, in understanding this passage Because the concept of total depravity means that we are utterly dependent on God to be able to, not only in eternity past, foresee, that's one of the words that are used here, but in fact orchestrate a plan that would restore mankind into a relationship with himself. So we need to start, I think, with this concept. And without God intervening, God would be perfectly just to have condemned and to put to death Adam and Eve. Because they sin, and the wages of sin is death. And God said, in the day that you eat of the fruit in the midst of the tree, you <coughs> shall surely die. So man is utterly incapable of changing that situation. We call that total depravity. I'm not going to go over this again. We've seen it over and over. When we speak of death that God is talking about in Genesis 3, all the scriptures there are Genesis 3, 7 through 9. It's a spiritual death. It's a separation. Ephesians says we're dead in our sins and our trespasses. It includes our intellect. Our thinking is totally distorted. Unless you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, your thinking is not biblical. It is totally distorted. Morally, no matter how... Good we try to be, we are depraved morally. In fact, that's twisted as well. And we see the first of it with Adam and Eve when they first experience shame. Emotions are affected as well. They have the first fear socially. They blame other things, don't take responsibility. That's part of deadness, part of depravity. Not taking responsibility for one's sin And the purpose is damaged and eventually physically. In fact, even Adam and Eve, before they ceased breathing, were experiencing death physically as well. In terms of pain, the death of individual cells, and then 930 years later, Adam ceased to breathe. We don't have a date for Eve. So, this plan that we have in uh, Romans is like a chain that you can't break. And I'm going to kind of emphasize that today. It begins in verse 28 and runs through verse 30. We've already looked at the broad scope of this plan that God has. This, to emphasis here, this does not pertain to the unbeliever. This is not true for the unbeliever. Secondly, this is what God will be doing. This is what God has done, is doing, and will do. This is God's plan. Okay, he doesn't mention faith. He doesn't mention the part that man is called upon to be a part of. And all we do is receive this free gift and then we are part of the plan. So in this plan, there's now he doesn't mention here, but I'm kind of filling in some of the gaps. I think uh, other passages like Ephesians one and this is debated and discussed this concept because it's hard for us to conceive of it. It doesn't seem like it's fair. It seems like some are left out. Well, what about them? It seems like God is being playing favorites. But I believe in the concept of the doctrine of, of election in the sense that if God had not taken the initiative, there'd be none that would have eternal life. That's why I start with depravity. Depravity says that there is nothing that man can do to change that dead condition. Man is utterly dependent on what God has done. God takes the initiative. And it seems from scripture, and this is debated, that God in eternity past has chosen some. And he has passed over others in terms of the rest of the plan. I'll explain that a little bit more. Here's where it gets a little difficult. So theologians and a lot of believers have a hard time accepting that had God chosen no one, no one would be saved. But he's chosen to save some. That's the doctrine of election in the more Calvinistic, which I accept, form as opposed to the more Arminian form, which emphasizes more human responsibility, I tend to be on the other end of the spectrum. But I also want to state the scriptures, the abundance of the scriptures, more deal with human responsibility because they're directed at us. So we need to know how we need to respond. But if you neglect the other aspect, I think we're out of balance. So you need to hold to both. We talked about that last time. Because both are true. Both are true. We may not be able to put them together, just like the doctrine of the Trinity. We may not intellectually be able to put them together, but because we have scriptures that I think are plain, this one being one of the clearest ones in terms of this concept, God's part. So I include it here, and I make it with a different color here, kind of a reddish, deep red color. What we have in the text is foreknowledge. Foreknowledge. And that's the beginning of the chain that he lays out here. We looked at that last time. This is what God has did in eternity past. He chose some, passed over others. I'll come back to that in a moment. And the text tells us foreknowledge, we looked at it last time, we saw that foreknowledge... In its everyday way of usage, for example, if it's used in a secular context, we saw where it's used in Acts, where Paul uses the word, the Greek word that is here, basically to be able to have a little bit of knowledge ahead of time in terms of how things may, from man's perspective, how things may turn out. Or the question is, when it pertains to God, is that all that is involved? In other words... Obviously, God is omniscient. It's almost redundant to even talk about foreknowledge if that's all that you're talking about because of God's knowing everything, every thought, every possibility, every variable, every even potential events because he's omniscient. He knows all things. So why does he include here? I tend to be on the side that sees that God, this is a little bit more, We don't know how much more, but we have another term that I think makes more specific, and that's predestination. One of the problems here is both of these words are only used for knowledge. What did I say last time? I've got it somewhere. I've got it on the slide. Was it six times? And I think predestination only eight times. So, oftentimes, when you don't have a lot of usages in, in Scripture, it's harder to narrow down the precise meaning of a term. When it occurs 200 times, it's you have a lot of confidence because it's used so many times. So, that's why we have a wide spectrum of interpretations here. Mary Lee.
1: In, scripture, in Scripture, God has also said that he is unwilling that any should perish. That's right. And so you can say, oh, he was not fair, he was this, he was that. But in light of his foreknowledge and understanding the omniscience that we can't, I certainly cannot grasp. If God said that he was unwilling that any should perish, that means that no one can say, oh, well, I'm just not chosen. Yeah. Because that that demonstrates man's depravity, man's
0: hardness of heart,
1: because we know that God has chosen highly unlikely people that we would have never figured as right. being...
0: Like you and I, Mary Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, and so you read the Bible and you find scoundrels and you think, well, my valley, there's hope for absolute scoundrels.
0: I resemble that remark.
1: <laughs> and so I, I just think that as we talk about his election, we also have to remember yes. that he loves the creation, and he is unwilling that any should perish, and he has provided yes. his way, not ours.
0: That's right, exactly. And not only that, but there are hundreds of passages that describe God as a just and a righteous God. So everything that he does, even in electing, is within his justice. And he's also a good God. It's within his goodness. In fact, all of the attributes, it's within his love. It's within his grace. And
1: I think we remember that it's within his love because sometimes you don't feel loved at the events that are going on and you think, God just
0: couldn't (laughs) did did it to me. And how can you trust a a God like that? You have
1: to remember that all of this stuff comes out of his love for a, a plan that that we are not we have not been invited to make any comments on
0: his plan. Right. Now I'm gonna come back to predestination, but let me give you the chain and then we'll come back and look at the ones that we skipped over. He also says, the ones in blue, foreknowledge, predestination, calling. Those are in the text in this context, but I think you need to keep in mind a couple of other concepts that are equally clear that are not included here and in calling now this is in time deals with the individual and those that i believe and in this chain by the way all of these are part of it and you can't break it and they pertain only to the believer and they're what god has done so he starts in eternity past elects some passes over others For knowing all of the circumstances, for knowing every situation in the future. And to God, there's no future. Basically, it's all the same. And he orchestrates. I like to use that word in terms of predestinating. He orchestrates circumstances. He sends a missionary to the darkest of America. He sends a track somewhere in South America. He sends a book to somewhere in Africa. All right. He orchestrates a plan such that in that he calls. Now, I think there's a broad call. That's, what is it, Matthew 22? Many are called, but few are what? The word elect is there. Few are chosen. All right? In fact, the word elect, by the way, is in this context. If you skip down to, what is it, 34? No, let's see, 33, okay. Who will bring a charge against God's what? That's the word. God's chosen. And the word in its everyday sense just has the idea of making a choice. One thing over another. I like blue. Some of you like red. Some of you like yellow. Whatever. That's a choice. God made a choice. But in the calling, back to the little chart here, he convicts some And I think he convicts everyone of the chosen, convinces them of their depravity, of their sin, and their need, and their utter hopelessness apart from Christ. He illumines those, that's part of the chain, everyone in the chain. He convinces them that Jesus Christ is the only solution. And what he did on the cross is the only way to receive the forgiveness of sin and the only way to enter into a relationship with him. And it's at that point, he doesn't mention it, and I don't even have it on the chart here because we're focusing on God's plan, that the elect, I believe, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and are born again. Part of the calling. And he justifies them. We've spent months on justification and it's put in the past tense, he glorifies. That's the future. That's the completion of. The sanctifying process. That's when we go to be with the Lord. Whether through death or through the rapture. One or the other. So that's the plan. That's the chain. And the ones in blue are in this text here. I've kind of filled in some of the others. Mainly to help us understand. Okay. For those whom he foreknew. We looked at this last time. Foreknowledge. Here's the term. Prognosco. That's the verb. Prognosis. Similar to an English word that we have, uh, that's the noun. And it's only used, I think, the verb, what is it, six times in the noun, two times in the New Testament, or five times. Uh, prognosco, five times in the New Testament. Prognosis, two times. So we don't have a lot of usages here. So theologians kind of debate it and try to figure it out. Basic meaning to know beforehand. We have an example, only one example in Acts 26.5. We looked at that last time where he's talking about those that knew Paul ahead of time. They knew something about him ahead of time. They had a little foreknowledge. It's a basic usage. But when we speak of God, it speaks of Christ. In other words, did God just simply know that Jesus Christ would eventually come? Or might there be more of a plan here in the beginning stages of implications? We looked at Acts 2.23 and the crucifixion of Christ. Did Jesus just foresee it? Or did he do more than just foresee this plan? The noun is used in that context. Even Israel, similarly, did God just simply know that there would be an Israel? Or did he do far more to make sure that there was an Israel? And that's why I'm inclined to think that there's probably a little bit more involved in foreknowledge here. It's not just simply foreknowledge. And then the other usages, and by the way, I think I've got all of the usages here. Acts 26, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. And then one of the noun, or the noun usages, there's one that seems to be missing. Well, the one in Romans 8. <laughs> okay, so believers, we looked at these last time. And I gave you Acts 2.23, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan. There's the plan. And for knowledge of God, in other words, you might even think, not only did God know, but took some steps or did something to implement this plan. For knowledge of God, you, man still has responsibility for his response. So you have both human responsibility in this passage and God's sovereign plan. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Crucifixion. Two concepts put together here. So, back to some of the details here. When we talk about election, we have God's word. We start with depravity. All condemned. All hopelessly lost. (coughs) All without any ability to change that condition. Evil. Election, God choosing some, passing over others. And that's where we have a hard time. But God is just. And he's perfectly just in passing over some. And I believe the elect God works to do all the other things that the text tells us in order to bring people into a relationship. Bill, did you have a comment?
2: Yeah, the model that... that. Fits the scripture the best uh, in my mind is that that I and mean, key to the model is that God's outside. Yep. And and God also is capable of doing anything He chooses. So one of the things He chooses to do is to give us the the freedom of choice to choose Him or reject Him. Yes. And and in that freedom, then we make those choices. That's right. And but He sees ahead the outcome of our making those free choices and that that's where the election comes from.
0: That's Uh, where that
2: word is used in that he has he sees what what we've done, but we still have the choice. And that's where it's difficult because both are true
0: and we don't have the intellectual capacity to grasp that. Right. Now, if you were going in the direction of the Arminian, I would disagree because the Arminian and those that give more priority to human volition, have a tendency to see the foreknowledge in the sense that, oh, okay, Bill is going to trust in me, he is going to be the chosen. It puts, in other words, it puts man as the the determiner of whether or not they're elect or not. And I think there's passages, I don't have them handy in chapter 9 even, where I think God chooses, and the only ones that believe are because God not only takes the initiative, but works in such a way to convict and to illuminate and convince the elect that in fact they're saved. See the difference between the two? One is God for knowing who's going to believe, and therefore they are the chosen. This one... The, the ones that do believe, they believe because they are the chosen. And without God's working and without God's initiative, depravity would uh, be the outcome.
2: That's why there's so much discussion on yeah. like this, is that mm-hmm. it's beyond our
1: ability to understand.
0: Yes. Yep, Ellen.
1: Say, there would not be an existence to, to follow the Lord,
0: but God did not. Correct. Correct. That's what used to worry me when I was young. What if...
1: I haven't been predestined, and therefore, even though I'm following what the Bible says to do, and I think maybe that's what caught up in election destiny. Yes.
0: Yeah, it's not easy. Yeah, I'm not saying it's easy. Um, and you may disagree. If you are not
1: chosen, in in other words, to say a little bit different, if you are not chosen, your heart doesn't even turn toward God. Your heart is against God. Yeah. And God does say their hearts are continually evil, so yes. I recognize it. So if in, in, at any time a person's mm-hmm. heart has turned, been turning toward God, and they either say yes <coughs> or no, that is that is where it, it really does become, in a sense, we have made a choice in that way. Right. But otherwise... We wouldn't even make the choice anyhow because of the, the innate depravity of mankind.
0: Right, right. And those thoughts that you're describing there, Ellen, uh, that's evidence that God has already begun to change your thinking and to change your mind and to, to, to move you. And you're in the process, if you hadn't already trusted In the process of God moving you to that point. And evidence that you were one of the chosen. Okay? So, God is passing over others, not intervening in their depravity. In other words, he lets the outcome of depravity work its work in those that are not the chosen. This is how I'm trying to put it together in terms of how it makes sense in my mind. Oh, I forgot. Russ. Is that... We confess our sins. <coughs> faithful Judge to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Now I take that to pertain to the believer, not the unbeliever. Nobody In other words, that's believe. fellowship. That's fellowship. That's not salvation. Go ahead. Anyway, a, a theologian, James McDonald from U. I.
1: said, "It's not either or. It's not somewhere between both. The first cause." Is Jesus Christ God, or is He the Son of God? He can't be both. Was He
0: God, man, both? It's got to be one or the other. Can't be both. In, in our understanding, it in God's, in our lack of understanding, yeah, in our lack of understanding, it uh, couldn't be. But was God? So could both? Have ever well, the passage people. that Bill uses, also and I use too, is Isaiah 55. We don't understand all the things that God does. Or who God we is? We don't understand, what we can. right? We cannot. Yeah. Go ahead, Russ. So,
1: after thinking about that, I said, "Is it possible that both predestination and pre-will could be true?" Again, in the uh,
0: economy of planet Earth, the answer is no. And God's economy, right? We don't understand all his ways,
2: <clears throat> and that's because you can make a solid scriptural argument on both sides. Yeah, and that's what gives us the clue that both are true. That's right. He does not
0: call us to understand; he calls us to trust, to believe. Right, right. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Part of the chain. That's why I kind of use the analogy there, and other—it's not original with me, but other theologians use the idea of a chain here. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So it's an unbreakable chain. Those whom, in other words, the same ones that he foreknew are the same ones that he predestined. In reading
1: that, knowing that in that so broken, remember that who am I? That's right. not fall to our knees, regardless of Right. And just follow him, obey him, glorify and praise him, regardless. Yes. Whatever, whatever is going on, and just be thankful. And to live that life so that we can shine for those who
0: we know that are who don't know. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it
2: also helps illustrate why the most important process in evangelism is prayer.
0: That's right. The that, that
2: prayer matters more than anything else.
0: Than, than, than any, any words prayer. that we speak. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very good. Those whom, four times in this chain... He repeats it four times. He links it. They're all linked together. He also says, he also, in other words, and I didn't capitalize it because it's not, I should have made it smaller, but it's in the text because at the beginning of the sequence there. Four times, he also, those whom he called, these are the same ones. (coughs) In other words, none lost, none added on the way. Part of the chain. Predestination, we have another term here. Pra, orizo, only six times, again. Not very frequent, so we have a hard time sometimes nailing the meaning. But if you break it down, pro, or pra, before, or before, or ahead of something, before, orizo, or chorizo. Anyone know what that is? What does that sound like? Horizon, Sounds like horizon, and Jeremy's got the meaning there. It has the idea of boundaries, in other words, that that has limits, boundaries. Uh, we also have the word that we have in verse 28, not here, but sometimes this word can be translated and is translated as predestination, prothesis, 12 times, and the usage of God to determine beforehand. To determine beforehand. That's the basic meaning. God made determinations. He not only saw outcomes, because of omniscience, but he determined outcomes. He determined how things would turn out. That's what makes Bible prophecy work. In other words, that's why we have assurance that there's this future plan that God has told us about. Because why, he is working them out. Sorry, I not It's also why
1: it. we know that he is not just an abstract God out there who said, oh my, what a mess they're in. Yeah. But that he is actively,
0: He's working.
1: intentionally, deliberately mm-hmm. working, not overall, not only overall, but in even in the, the most minute details that we might know.
0: Exactly. Exactly. It even includes unbelievers... And that's the Acts 4:28 passage. Let's look these up. And it includes, obviously, believers, for it's used more frequently. We have it here in verses 29 and 30, two times. So out of the six, we have a third of them here in Romans. Somebody look up Acts. Well, I've got Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly in this city, now this is the crucifixion again, second time in the book of Acts, For truly in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, he's referring to not only the Jews but the Romans, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, historical figures, along with the Gentiles, so not just Jewish, Gentiles, and the people of Israel, there's the Jewish people, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose pre destined to occur, what God determined ahead of time to occur. Got that? Praorizo is the word that we have right here in this context. This is one of the usages. God orchestrated, and keep in mind, God is also holy, totally holy. God is not responsible for the evil. That's clear in Scripture. He's perfectly Holy. Yet he can use all things for good. That's what Romans eight twenty-eight has to say. He can use the evil of Herod, Pontius Pilate, all of the Gentiles, all of the Jews. He can use their evil for good. In fact, he pre-determined uh, to do that, and that's what Acts four twenty-eight is telling us.
1: Is that safe?
0: Goes beyond our capability to put together.
1: Is that same sense what's found in Genesis 040 something or
0: other where
1: Joseph tells his brothers you for good, but God intended it for evil. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good to save many. many.
0: Right. The concept is there, not the word. Not the word, okay. Is it key word or something? Right. Well, he's just describing the meaning of this predetermined plan without using any Greek or Hebrew word. 2027, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Uh, just pull that slide from somewhere else. Okay, predestination. So God works to overcome depravity, and he does that by first choosing, choosing some, but we know not everyone believes, that many, most reject, So he passes over others, not intervening in their depravity, letting it run its course. The nature of depravity is such that if God just passes over, he is not responsible for it. Volition, man's volition, chooses to reject God. Then predestination is God orchestrating the outcomes for the elect in this context. Orchestrating the immense. So he puts people in the families where they can hear the gospel. And if they don't hear it in the family, he sends a tract or he sends a missionary or he sends an evangelist or he sends a Bible verse or he sends a radio program or he sends a book or whatever. God orchestrates the outcome such that the elect will hear the gospel. And by the way, God begins with general revelation such that everyone has a revelation of God. We saw that in Romans chapter 1. Therefore, Paul says they are without excuse. There's no one that will be able to stand up before God and say, well, you didn't reveal yourself to me. Romans 1 says, and he gives us the specifics. You had a revelation. You rejected it. No one's going to be able to stand before God and says, well, I wasn't one of the chosen. No one's going to be able to do that. No one can raise a fist up to God. And God is going to say, I gave you the choice. I gave you the calling, the general calling. You rejected that as well. You rejected my general revelation. You rejected the calling, the general calling. And your volition said, no, I'm going to raise my fix against God. God is going to be perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly just in orchestrating the outcome for the elect. But there's a purpose for this. We're not going to finish today. For those who for foreknew, he also predestined. And notice... In the context, he's not talking about salvation. He goes beyond that. Not presupposes it, and he can't go beyond it without it. But there's more to it. He predestined us to become conformed to the image of his son. What's the context? That sanctification, to become more and more like Christ in our character as we grow. We're not there automatically, we're not there instantaneously. It's a process. In fact, we fall way short. That's why we need God to ultimately intervene to complete the process. That's glorification. But he has predestined us to become conformed to the image of his son. So the sanctifying process, God is working circumstances. He's given you opportunity to learn from his word Opportunity to to study the word, uh, to be able to have experiences. In fact, even suffering to bring you to conformity to his son. And not only that, well, there's a purpose for the believers conforming to the image of the son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. There's a purpose that goes beyond you and I. And it is focused on the Son. Jesus Christ. He ultimately desires to glorify Jesus so that he, referring to the Son, is capitalized, would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now prototokos is the Greek word here. Doesn't mean that Jesus was born. It's referring to the priority, that Jesus would be the priority. That's what the meaning of that word is. Not only priority, but be preeminent. And Jesus will have others that will be like him in eternity. And that's the broad, big picture purpose of predestination. And obviously for you and I, it presupposes that we come into a saving relationship. So there is a purpose for believers and there's a purpose for the son. The ultimate purpose is to glorify the son. And that is frankly amazing. That is amazing. Yep. What can you say? But bow down, as Juliet pointed out, and worship him. And we'll have to reserve verse 30 for next time. The performance of the plan or the outworking of the plan. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Now he's moving into time. And we'll expand that next time. And in our chain here, I've already kind of previewed it. God calls individual through the gospel message. And he's done that, beginning with Adam and Eve. Who took the initiative with Adam and Eve? Who called them back into a relationship? They were hiding. They were in shame. God is the one that took the initiative to call them to himself. And he calls others that are unbelievers today to come into a relationship with him that their sins might be forgiven. Had we gotten to glorification, this is the slide that I wanted to conclude with. Not only is our salvation secure, and by the way, the rest of the passage is going to give more security to salvation. But in this context, also our glorification. It's as if it was done and finished. It's in the past tense. Who wants to close for us? Go ahead, Mary. Heavenly Father, really just stand before you
1: in awestruck wonder at what you chose to do. That we acknowledge each of us in our own heart that we are not worthy, that we fall short, that we go our own way, we willfully go our own way. And yet you chose. You chose, you brought about circumstances, Holy Spirit, in our lives. You are in the process of transforming us from base trash into objects of glory to stand before You, reflecting back the glory that of who You are and what You are. And so, all we can do is bow down before You and give praise and thanks to
0: You. Amen. See you next week.